one year, I kind of got an idea. You know, I want to try trap. I like to trap. I like to make lure, and I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money hand over fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got to the fur boom. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. Trappers love being trappers in a positive light. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Herb Lennon Game Magazine. Instruction from Herb Lennon. Herb Lennon's articles, the Herb Lennon ads to information, trapping radios. We are trappers on ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. Alright, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet that's working ahead of time to build big trapping. If you got variables to change the characters, you got bog trap. They start talking about these big fans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down bottom. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't get any better. Trying to set predator trash and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like a sheer. You better edit this part out. Yeah, it was better. Hello and welcome to Trapping Today. I'm Jeremiah Wood. Thank you for listening in. We're brought to you by Cox Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com. Traps, snares, baits, lures, books, DVDs. Cox Brothers has what you need to get started on the trap line. On X Maps, use your phone as a GPS on the trap line. Mark trap locations, run tracks, scout using the latest aerial imagery, and get landowner information. And Moyle, Mink, and Tannery. What are you going to do with the fur you catch this year? You're going to probably sell some of it. Uh, what about getting a tan? How about preserving some of those memories of the first animals that you catch? Um, how about exploring some alternative markets? When you tan your fur, it preserves it for the long term so you can decide what you're going to do with it later. You won't make the mistake that I did when I sold a bunch of my fur early on in my trapping career and I wish I would have saved it. First of each animal I caught, I wish I'd have hanging on the wall right now, but you can't take that back. But if you're getting started, go to Moyle. The professionals will tan your fur and provide a really quality product. And I'm so excited about tonight's episode because we're gonna talk with Ryan Moyle of Moyle Mink and Tannery. And I've been wanting to talk with him for quite a while now. And this is such an in-depth conversation. We're gonna uh, we're going to be a little light on the intro here because I want to save plenty of time. This is going to be a long one. I think Ryan and I talked for about an hour and fifteen, hour and twenty minutes. So we're we're gonna we're gonna go in depth in the, the whole tanning process. It was pretty fascinating how much information he provided. He started by going into the background and history of the company, and then went into detail every step of the tanning process and how it's done. Um, the different factors involved, how they treat different species differently, and all the various things that, you know, when you send your fur out and a month later, two months later, three months later, whatever, you get it back, you don't really know what goes on in that process and, and what's involved there. We're going to get a really good inside view here today on, on what goes on and hopefully answer a lot of your questions. So if you're if you're going to send fur to get tanned, you, you'll have a, a much better idea what's going on on that end and why certain things happen in certain ways. And also, it, it might give a little bit of insight for some people who want to try doing some fur tanning at home. 
uh, get a better understanding of, of that whole process. So we're going to get into that. A couple of quick notes. Um, again, this is a, this is a great episode tonight. I'm ex- excited to bring this to you. We got another great one coming next week. I interviewed Kirk DeKalb, a beaver trapper from Georgia. And Kirk, uh, about 10 years ago, he put out a couple of beaver trapping DVDs, uh, Trapping Tales and Catching the Numbers. I've uh, written some reviews uh, on on those on trappingtoday.com. Uh, actually, quite a while back, back toward the beginning of, of when the whole thing began at Trapping Today. And uh, Kirk also has, uh, he manufactures traps and he's got a new book out and all that. But uh, this was just a fascinating interview because this man has uh, somewhere north of 16,000 beavers under his belt. And he was, when he was doing it full time, he was consistently catching over a thousand beavers in three months. So pretty, uh, pretty deep pool of knowledge to draw from there. So I'm excited to bring that one to you as well. And also as I record this next Sunday, which will be the 21st of February, I believe I'm going to be on the Maine outdoors radio shows for you. Those of you who are listeners in Maine, and uh, if, you, if you tune in on Sunday nights at 7 o'clock into WVOM, the Voice of Maine radio program, uh, th- that they have a, a Maine Outdoors show every week. And I'm going to be calling in to talk trapping with, uh, with one of the hosts there. So we're, we've been talking about that a little bit, going back and forth on different topics we're going to discuss. I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be a great opportunity to get a little bit more trapping information out there to the general outdoor, the general public. Um, I'm actually a little too far north to get the station where I live. Um, it's more in central Maine, and I'm outside of the uh, the zone, outside of the, the, the airwaves uh, that reach most of the state, except for the, the far northern uh, hinterlands. However, I believe they have uh, some rebroadcasts of those in kind of an audio podcast form. You can't get it on a podcast app that I'm aware of, but on their website, I believe they they do uh, rebroadcast those. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on, out for that. Um, but if you are uh, a regular listener to that and uh, you're a local, local trapper and you want to listen in, that would be awesome to, uh, to have you tuning in. And there is an opportunity to call into the show. I guess that, uh, from what I've been told, they do get a few uh, uh, call-ins occasionally. Some I, I don't. Sometimes they may go without getting any calls, but some weeks they might get a couple, three calls come in. And uh, as I understand it, we will be answering calls as they come in, and uh, and hopefully, if there's any questions, we. We'll be answering them live on the show. So first time I've done a live interview, it'll be exciting. I'm looking forward to it. But what I'm really looking forward to right now is to share this interview with Ryan Moyle from Moyle, Mink, and Tannery. So let's get into it. All right, Ryan Moyle from Moyle, Mink, and Tannery, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. So I just wanted to start off with a little bit of background on you and the company, who, who you are and what you do. Okay, sure. Well, the company got started in the fur business in the during the Great Depression. My um, great uncle, my grandfather's brother, he had polio and really couldn't get a job. 
So he um, he managed to borrow from his mother her burial money that they used to keep in a little jar, you know. And uh, he went and bought five mink, brought them home, and then he was kind of embarrassed. He thought people were going to make fun of him, his brother. So he hid behind his house, and he used to slaughter old draft horses, feed the mink. Well, after about two years, he uh, he came in in a, in a brand new car. His mink were worth a lot of money back then, so his brothers were no longer making fun of him. And they kept working at the steel mill and uh, told him not to kill any of those mink, just to multiply them. So they did that for several years down in Utah, and then they moved to Idaho in 1939. It was a better place to do it. And since 1939, my grandfather started uh, our location here in Burley, Idaho. And then um, he ran that until the 1950s. Then when my father was uh, 16 years old, my grandfather was killed in, a, in an auto accident. So then my, my dad and his brothers took it over. And uh, a few years after that, you know, well, many years after that, the, the brothers all ended up with their own farms. My dad kept the original farm. And then in uh, 1986, not to have to sell his skins at the auction and try to, try to move out onto his own and vertically integrate, my father built a tannery. And it's kind of an interesting story because back then the tanning was really uh, kind of a secret and uh, nobody would teach him how to do it. Um, and it was a big, uh, you know, everybody kind of laughed at him because he started building this tanner, didn't know how to tan. Yeah. And my mother went to a fashion show in New York for the fur industry in the 1980, about, I, I think, 1985, 86. And at this fashion show, my mom happened to go from it was a convention kind of thing and went from the the fur convention over to the hotel or something where they were having the car the the show and happened to get in the same cab or limo or whatever as a gentleman named david turnham from uh england that owned a tannery over there so they were chatting and he said oh well i own a tannery my mom she uh she said oh my husband's building a tannery he wants to learn how to do it (laughs) And she said, would you teach him how to do it? And he said, oh, sure. And he was just kind of being cocky and said, well, yeah, sure. For $100,000, I'll teach him how to do it. And uh, so they got to the show. My mom went out to the lobby, got the payphone, called my dad and said, uh, this guy says he'll teach us for 100 grand." And he said, write him a check. Really? So uh, wow. about six months later, he and his tannery manager and five of their their crew came over and stayed with us in Idaho for about three months or so. I was I was only about eight years old, and they taught us how to tan mink. So in the beginning, all we tanned was our own mink to sell our own uh, product, and we used to make the garments also. We used to make the mink coats. So we did the we collected the feed, we grew the mink, and then we uh, harvested them, them. Had the tannery, and my mom was a designer and made the garments. So you were truly a vertically integrated operation. All the way through. Wow. And then really what happened was when the manufacturing of the garments started to go overseas and they started to build them in China, we knew we couldn't compete with that. So we stopped with the garments. And it was actually my mother's idea to try and start to get some tanning from uh, from trappers and specifically trappers. Because back then we thought, well, when the, when the manufacturing goes to China, it won't be long before the tanneries go to China for the, the big fur trade. Yeah. And so the big buyers that buy a hundred thousand mink, a million mink, or they buy ten thousand raccoons, or 
of you know 100,000 muskrats or whatever it all gets done overseas but there was nobody that was doing any dressing for somebody who had a small business over here mm-hmm. or somebody who wanted to you know their son caught his first skunk and they wanted to keep it and put it on the wall so there there really wasn't anybody that catered to that except for a few taxidermy tanneries which some of them do a pretty decent job for for mounting product but they never really were focused or skilled on producing a fur that was soft and clean that you could make a garment out of that was that was beautiful theirs was more to make a statue to stick on the wall mm-hmm. and so she started going to some of the local trapper rendezvous just here Idaho Utah you know the Pacific Northwest started to collect a little work in and that's how we got started and just started catering specifically to trappers and we did that for year after year after year going to all these little shows and then um then later we started doing uh, more by accident because of where we live um bison hides starting showing up well we're, we're only about a four-hour drive from Yellowstone National Park. Mm-hmm. This, this is where all the bison are. And then one year, all of a sudden, it was 600 bison. And now we do, I think it's about 2,500 bison a year. Wow. So that became like an almost like a separate line in the whole factory. These are, these are bison hides to be done as, you know, decorative things for your house to throw over the couch or put on the floor, that kind of a, that kind of a thing. And then from there, we progressed on a little more, and some local taxidermists came in and wanted to know if we could do their taxidermy work. And so we started working with taxidermy-type work in late, early 2000s, 2001 to 2005. And we struggled with that a little bit. It was a little bit, it required a little bit different kind of tanning than what we did with the fur. There was a bit of a learning curve there. We had some uh, bumps along the road. But um, now, about 20 years in on the taxidermy tanning, we, uh, we, we have a really good, thriving market there. And the nice thing about having all three of those markets for our tannery is they come in at different times of year. Okay. The taxidermy comes in early, you know, in late fall, early winter, because that's when everybody goes hunt. You know, we've got hunts in Idaho that started in August for mm-hmm. antelope, for example. So we can start kind of getting the the factory primed up with that kind of a product and then the bison come in and we're going to space those out through the whole season and then of course all the the trapper work really starts to come in in february march and april and by serving all three markets we can kind of balance the workout through the whole year and the other thing is we're not tossed around so much by the changes in the fur market yeah the the bison market is a little it's a whole different thing it's not really affected by fur uh, if home sales are really taking off in the country, we'll do more bison stuff, but, but okay. it doesn't vary too much. And taxidermy is its own different world. Those guys don't care what the price is. They're, they're hunting for trophies. And then the fur goes up and down a little bit with the fur market. So that helps, helps us have stable amount of work coming into the factory. And we're able to continue to grow and keep our, keep our guys busy all the time. So, so that's, um, that's where we're, that's where we are today. So just a general approximation, do those three parts of your business make up about equal amounts of, of your work total, or is one greater than the others? Yes. The work that we do for trappers is by far and above the, the greatest portion. Okay. Um, for trappers, let me think. 
uh, trappers are probably, I would say, 60 to 70% of the work. Wow, okay. Cool. Yeah, the, the biggest chunk by far. And I'm, I'm convinced that we have the largest tannery in the world if you measure it by number of customers. Okay, yeah, sure. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, yeah the, we'll find, you know, there's tanneries in, in China that do, a, you know, 2 million mink a year, 3 million mink a year. That, that's monstrous size. But, but they have only working 25, yeah, 25 customers. Yeah. Uh, I visited a tannery in Italy not too long ago, and they were about the same size, did about the same volume we did, but they had five customers. That's it. <laughs> Big customers. And here, in a single year, we have – we service about 6,000 customers in a season. No kidding. And we have uh, a little over twenty to 25,000 customers that are in the database that are active. And what I mean is you may have a trapper who this year got himself a really nice red fox, and so he sent it to us, and we tanned it for him and sent it back. And then he doesn't send us anything for two years. And then all of a sudden, he got a really nice beaver he wants to give to his son. Sure. So then he send us something. So they're, they're not customers that are coming in every month, but they're, they're active in the sense that in, in a five-year period, we'll see them two or three times at least. Yeah. So customers active like that, we've got about 20,000 or more. And I don't think there's anybody in the world that has that. No, that has to be quite a, a task in terms of accounting and keeping everything, keeping track of everything. It is. It is. The, uh, the the accounting to make sure everybody gets their specific skin back makes up nearly 20% of our labor cost, okay. which is a huge chunk. Um, you know, the bigger tanners don't deal with that. If, if you got somebody send you 100 coyotes because he bought them, you know, and he's going to, you know, make coats or garments or trims out of them or something, and one of them uh, slips or one of them, uh, you know, if it got swapped with somebody else's coyote or something by mistake, they really don't care. They've got a hundred coyotes, and one of them is, you know, yeah. uh, not that big a deal if they lost it or something. With us, if somebody sends in one coyote and they don't get theirs back, it's a big problem. Absolutely. So we have to spend a we have to spend a lot of time on that. Yeah. How how do you? Well, actually, I'll get into that a little later. I did want to ask you. Um, more recently, with the lower fur prices, uh, you know, just anecdotally, a lot of trappers talk about sending more fur and i know i've sent more fur to the tannery because of the lower fur prices have you seen that on your end i think so um it gets it's a little bit we used to really see it years ago when we would see the price drop then we would notice we would get a lot more particular products um and it seems like we do have bigger and smaller years but we've been able to add to our customer base almost every year now and so every year is a little more than the years past okay. so it becomes a little bit more difficult to measure because we're constantly adding a little bit growing a little bit every year so we might see a year where we grew three percent because fur prices were up but then the next year fur prices came down and maybe we grew eight mm percent -hmm. so it's it's not as noticeable and we've also got a more and more clientele that have found markets here in the u.s to do with their own skins so when, let's say the prices came down in 1998 for example and the guy decided well i'm gonna i'm gonna send them out to tanner get them tan and find something to do with them and then he discovers that he he finds a small market 
um, outside of a national park where he's selling it to a guy that's selling him in the in the gift shop. Mm-hmm. And once he's got that customer, even when the price comes back, they don't let him go. Mm-hmm. So the the this drop in the fur prices seems to encourage trappers who are industrious to go out and find a little market for their skins. But then when the prices go back up, they might send more to the auction or or trap a little bit more, but they don't want to get rid of the outlet that they have created for themselves for their product. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that we've had these low fur prices for a long period of time recently, and it's it's creating more of an incentive to do that, to make sure there's some sort of a base uh, for you know, a place to send your fur when, when you have no market otherwise. Exactly. So, so what happens is the price may drop, a few more people may figure out where they can market it, and then when it comes back, they might um, market a little less that way, but they keep selling some of their own, and then they trap some more, they sell at the auction, and, and they charge a little more for what they sell to their customer. But they don't seem to just sell it all to the auction again. Now. Yeah. There, there are some exceptions. If you see Bobcats go to $1,400 a piece, <laughs> we don't get so many that year. Yeah. But it is quite surprising. We still get them huh. and still and big numbers, you know, not not like coyotes or something. But, you know, and I, I see some beautiful ones come through when they're worth And I'm like, that's like a $1,500 cat. Yeah. I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, why did that guy send that to us? <laughs> but at the same time, it could have been his first one. Right. Or at the same time, it's the nicest one he ever caught, and he just wants to keep it. Yeah. Price doesn't Period. matter at that point. Yeah. Yes. And for people that are kind of small-time fur buyers who might send, you know, 10 or 20 bobcats or coyotes to do things with uh, to, to fulfill those markets, I'm assuming it's still much more economical to send to you guys than it is to, to go to any of these overseas markets. Yeah, by the time you pay for the freight and the fishing game export and import permits and all that kind of stuff to send it abroad, you've got to have some, you know, numbers way up in the thousands to be able to make that okay. work. And that generally works if they're going to be sold in the country where they're sending them to be tanned. Okay. But to ship it over, have it tanned, and bring it back, then you're going to need some pretty big numbers to do that. And if they've shipped it overseas to get it tanned cheaper they're probably going to have it manufactured there cheaper also. Yeah. Yeah. And do you, have you ever thought about the, the way the market is changing? Uh, is, do you think there'll ever be a situation where, where trappers might be better off to, to have all of their fur tanned, even large amounts and just sell it to buyers as tanned fur? I, I can think of one scenario for that because, um, it started to come up a little bit this year. Tan fur, or sorry, excuse me, raw fur seems to be, is a little bit of a unique item. Um, if you look at other leather fur type goods that are sold around the world, and I'm, I'm talking about cattle hides, mm-hmm. bison hides that go for leather, um, wool, sheepskin, all that stuff, none of that product can really leave the country unless it's been brined or pickled. Okay. And, and they do that for disease reasons because once they go through those processes, then they can be shipped around the world and they're not worried about transporting brucellosis or bacteria or some, you know, something on the skins. And fur has for years seemed to have um, never had that problem. And I think it's just because that's the trade grew up historically, you know, from, 
from the first trappers that came here when the, when they settled the new world, they dried it because they didn't. Nobody had a factory to to pickle it or brine it or tan it. They everybody dried it on the side of the the the, the cabin out in the woods when they were out trapping. Yeah. And then that's how they brought it to market, and then it was then it was shipped and stored and and, and processed that way. But this year it was kind of interesting. China put a ban on the import of raw mink skins. And the ban was because of coronavirus, because mink can get coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So they were afraid to import the skins because they didn't want to transport the coronavirus around. So it, it looks like they've maybe got some ways to fumigate them to make sure that they're disinfected before they get shipped. Or, and a lot of them were just going to send them to Vietnam and stuff instead, have them tanned and then sent into the country. Okay. But, you know, unless, unless there's a, you know, a, uh, uh, a push to for that you know some kind of a health reason to do that i think it'll still be moved raw because if you're working with beaver for example there are some beaver that are nicer to be made a shearing beaver versus long hair beaver yeah. or um you know if you're dealing with muskrats or something and they're gonna they want to dye them of spe a specific color it's easier to pick the raw product and then determine what you're going to do with it than tan it all. Because when you tan it and then grade it, then then you'd have to go through and reprocess to do the dyeing and that kind of stuff. Okay. So if, if the market was what it was 100 years ago, where right. everybody used the fur natural, you know, no, 100 years ago nobody dyed a silver fox or a – uh, a mink it was natural and, and there was a premium for for mutation colors because it was very unique well now that the tanneries sear and pluck and dye and carve and do all these interesting things it's a little more important for them to have the raw material um to select from on which ones are best for that now the interesting thing is when they select items that are that wouldn't necessarily, let's say you've got a particular item, wouldn't make a really nice coat, for example. But if they shear it, pluck it, dye it, carve it, it makes something really nice. It actually creates a little bit of a new market, more value for those lower grade skins. Sure. Yeah. So I hope that I hope that answers the question. Yeah, that makes that is perfect. Um, I I hadn't thought about it as nearly as deeply as you have, so that's that was good. Um, what do you think about going through uh, the the whole tanning process? Like from the time that we send a raw fur to your tannery, like uh, where it, how it starts out and and how it runs through the process? Because I think a lot of people, myself included, really don't have any clue on the details on the different steps and, and how to get a fur tanned. Okay, sure. Uh, the first thing that we have to get straight is the accounting. Now this becomes a little bit of a, a, a problem. It's bigger than what people think. UPS will come by every day and drop off anywhere from 50 to 100 boxes. So the first thing we have to do is open up those boxes, sort people's orders and make sure we have it all. But that can become interesting because it's a big monster pile and somebody may have sent three different boxes in their in their their order. Yeah. And you're trying to sort the boxes out and get them piled up based on owner, but um, n not everybody puts all the information on their boxes. And so we may open two boxes, think we have somebody's full order, and then we go ahead and inventory it and stuff. 
And then towards the end of the day, we find one more box in the pile that belonged to that guy. Yeah. Because he didn't put a detailed inventory in each box. So you open one box and you think this is all the guy has. But if they put on their box something like box one of three, then we know this guy has three boxes. Yeah. So that really, it really causes a lot of labor trying to sort all that stuff out. But once we have the, the customer's orders figured out, let's, let's say somebody sent in uh, some bobcats, some beavers, and um, some raccoons. And so the first thing that we'll do is those three items are not tanned together. We have 14 different tanning lines at the factory, and they're grouped together by types of fur so that we can get a better result. We don't tan the, the waterborne animals like mink, otter, beaver, don't get tanned with the coyotes, mm -hmm. for example, because they're completely different animal. The, the beaver has a much tougher leather, much, much stronger, same thing with the otter, and shorter hair. Well, I'll get to why that's important in a minute, but the first thing to understand is Everything gets broke down. So a lot of people don't understand why they, they might call and we'll tell them, well, your coyotes are finished, but your beavers aren't. And they say, well, why is that? Why don't you just tan it all together? Well, it's because they have to go through different lines. Yeah. So the first thing that we'll do is break it down into different types. And then we will we'll mark your skins with a, a little punch. And so everybody gets different numbers. Okay, so I was going to ask you what that little to. number is on the inside of my otter pelt I'm yeah. holding right now. Yeah. So we have to figure out how to get your skin back to you. So there's a three-digit code, and that's your code forever. Okay. So if we find a skin laying around on the floor in the factory, we can read the code and figure out that this belongs to, you know, Sam Jones or whoever. And so um, everything gets it's, – it's not – I'd call it a tattoo, but it, there's no ink in it. It's just a punch mark. Yep. And then they're separated up, and then we weigh all the batches. So when we process beaver, for example, it's 185 pounds. When we, when we process coyotes, they're 95 pounds. So we have a room with scales in it, and all the, all the lots are sitting on the scales. Once they reach their weight, that's, that whole box gets moved into the warehouse, and it's got a number on it. And then we have an <clears throat> uh, uh, inventory of how many different lots we have of each particular production line. That's how we start to organize what starts to go into the factory. Okay, so if it's a less common item, it might wait a little longer before it gets enough weight to make a batch? Yeah, so this is kind of an interesting, funny thing that happens. Um, during the very slow part of the season, which, which is August, September, is when we receive the fewest amount of skins, sometimes it can actually take longer to get something back. Um, the, the, on the fur items, it's not really such a big deal, but on the taxidermy items, if somebody sends in a mountain lion off-season, and, well, I've got to wait till I get 175 pounds of lions before I can do that group. Then it might sit there for a month before we get enough to move it to the factory. Mm -hmm. So there are times of the year on specific items we have to tell people that the 40-day service, the rush service, is not available. Yeah. Because we just don't have enough to do it. During the busy season, that, that's pretty easy to overcome. So once everything's been sorted into their batches, they're shipped off to the warehouse – they're processed on a first-come, first-served basis. And then the first thing that happens when they go to the factory is we've got to get it wet again. Everybody has air-dried or salt-dried these skins. And the first thing we have to do is get them wet again. And this is the most dangerous part of the tanning because this is where a skin will slip. Okay. Because when you're, when you're soaking it up, 
you need it to once I mean the purpose of dehydrating it is to make sure it doesn't is to preserve it so the bacteria doesn't grow. Yeah. As soon as we introduce water back to it, all that bacteria will start to grow again. So we we put some salt in the water that helps control bacteria. Doesn't kill it, but it slows its growth. And then we put in some bacteria sides that kill bacteria. Now we can put in. You know, you you could soak the skin in bacteria side if you wanted to. And if it was already starting to spoil when somebody dried it, it's still going to slip. The damage is already done. Okay. So there's a difference between a skin that showed up and it might be totally dry, but it spoiled before it got completely dry. And then when it dried up, it kind of tightened up and the hair's there. As soon as we get it wet, the hair falls out. Mm-hmm. That one was just spoiled on arrival. And, you know, when we do thousands and thousands of skins. There's, there's a small percentage that that slip and it's just because it wasn't taken care of properly in the field and you can't tell when you get it right no if it's i mean you well let me back that up you can tell the ones that are really bad for sure because they stink they show up they smell bad they have bugs on them they've got mold on them they've got a bad smell and those we we have a policy on those now we either send them back to the client or we'll, we'll call the client and say you've got some bugs in this thing and we can't send it to the main warehouse with bugs in it because we don't want the bugs to multiply and get into everybody else's stuff. Yeah. So what we'll do is we'll give them the opportunity to we either send it back, throw it away, or we'll expedite the order for the 40%, and we, we try to put it in the next day right into the process. Oh, okay. So it doesn't sit around any longer. Yeah. But And then, then there are a lot of hides that, and this is, this is the difference between a good tannery and a bad tannery, there are a lot of hides that were – semi-prepared well in the field in other words the guy got it dried and everything it's starting to spoil but hadn't quite spoiled just yet those are the kind of hides where you put them in water to to rehydrate them and if you don't have your bacteria side and everything just right the bacteria will start to grow and it'll and it'll slip later in the process so the difference is is one that's basically dead on arrival and the other one is it's spoiled once we started working with it so we do our best to use our bacteria sides and a few things to to slow the bacteria growth. But here's and then we and then we take it to the pickle phase. But this is where we do the dance. It, there are things that we can do to reduce the slippage overall in order to take it down to just almost zero, except for the ones that were really 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 bad. The problem is is if we do that, the tanning doesn't come out soft. Oh, okay. So a lot of people think that you can just fix the problem. Well, we, we can we can soak the things in formaldehyde if we want to when they get here, and they won't slip at all. But then when you get it back, you're not going to like the product. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's this very fine line where we we want to make sure that everybody who properly took care of their skins, they come out properly. They're good. And then... Everybody who let, let's say a guy's pretty good at it and he does a couple of hundred a year and then he's got one or two that, you know, maybe it was in the trap a few hours longer or or was for whatever reason it was a little warmer day, and it's one that I would say is it's on the edge. Mm-hmm. In other words, it might slip, it might not slip. If 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 you if you get on it quick and we move it through and and it and it's a newer skin, it's only a month old versus one that's six months old. There's all these little variations of of this this spectrum of of uh, of it's becoming worse and worse and worse and worse until it slips we want to have a formula that a process that prevents that from getting worse uh, 
and 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 we're managing that pretty good but we don't want to take it down to where affects the other rest of the it it affects all the good skins yeah and so that that's a a tricky thing for people to understand and when we put in you know 150 beaver to soak and if we get one out that slipped i don't worry about it because the other 149 came out good that can often become a, a a difficult uh discussion with a customer especially if it happens to be his first beaver right or that that because this isn't just you know you can't you know when you're when you're dealing with big fur buyers and they lose one they don't really it's not that big a deal they know they understand that that happens they bought hides that somebody else took care of and they price that in when they're purchasing it they figure a certain percent would you know even ourselves when we tend our own mink they were all raised they were all bred at the same time raised on the same diet, harvested on the same, the same way, all of them dried on boards exactly the same way, temperature controlled, you know, 30,000 skins, everything identical. And we'll still have at the end of that, probably out of the 30,000, 30 or 40 that just for whatever reason, as soon as we got them wet, they went to hell. Yeah. And, and that's just where you tell people, look, this is mother nature and every one of these things is an individual. And this, this is, um, this is a problem. So, and some of it can happen because of a vitamin deficiency. We've seen that in our own mink when the, when the diet wasn't right. If, uh, if we fed them too much turkey, the avidin in the turkey egg would uh, create a biotin deficiency in the mink. And when you would tan them, the guard hair would be loose and want to fall out. So even what the, cust- well, even what the animal ate in the wild might have a determination on what the final product looks like. Mm-hmm. So we do our best to manage that. So the first step is the soaking. And then after that, we do a fleshing. Um, not to say that people don't do a good job in the field, but we take it down and we, make, we, we run it across our knives until there's absolutely no membrane, no fat, nothing left on the skin whatsoever. And do you do you do this on, on all skins, not just the thick-hided skins like beaver? Everything, everything. Okay. So, so like say you're, say you're getting a thin-hided skin um, – that you re-wet, say a coyote, for instance. Uh, I'm just real curious. What percentage of those would would you have to re-flush? I know you said you do all of them, but what percentage were maybe underdone by the trapper? Oh, ten percent, I'd say. Okay, so the majority yeah. of them are still are still uh, coming yeah, in pretty good. Yeah, I mean, usually, you know, unless it's the guy's first time or something, you know. But usually, people have done a fairly good job. You know, and, and it's not much, but there's always a little bit of membrane left, especially around the heads and things like that. Mm-hmm. And and our knives are fine enough with the way that we do that, that we can get that off. And we have to remove all of that because if you don't, the tan will come out stiff. So okay. we remove so we remove that. And How then the next step, that? Uh, on the fleshing side, that depends on the kind of skins that we're dealing with on beaver. It's it's um, it's quite a bit more. On something like a red flat fox, we just pass over it and, and nip off a couple pieces here and there that got missed around the head. Yeah. So it really depends on, on the species. Uh, on something like an elk or a bison, that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so it, it's, it really depends on the species. But from there, then the best thing we do or the best step is to take it and wash the skin. And you want to – what we do is remove all that membrane and then we wash it. The purpose of the washing – is more of a degreasing to remove all the fat and oil that's left in the leather and okay. get it out of there. Because that, just like when you when you dry your hide, mm-hmm. it gets stiff, right? Yeah. 
that's because of the fats and oil that's in it. So if we tan it and then let it dry again with all those fats and oils in it, it'll dry up stiff. Okay. So you might look at it and say, well, this, this tan is a little bit softer than the other one. Most likely that's because in that particular skin or whatever, the tanner was able to remove more of the fats mm-hmm. and more, more of it. Because you, you'll never get 100%, but if you can remove 90% and the other tannery removed 70%, there'll be a noticeable difference in how soft and flexible and, and, and light that the finished product is. Yeah. And so we've got to remove all of that. And are you doing then, that? Are, are you uh, are you washing in like a cold water or warm water? Or you got a specific formula that you use? Yeah, we've got a specific we've got a specific formula and specific detergents that we buy that are specially made for the tanning industry to do that. And it's warm water, lukewarm, about ninety degrees. Okay. Uh, the cold water is too cold to to you know grease is the it, it you know you ever try to wash like a greasy pan in yeah. cold water it doesn't work so well I was, I was wondering about that because if you get too warm you might risk further bacteria growth right yeah and, and then, if you get too yeah exactly yeah. yeah so um we don't like to take the skins ever over the normal body temperature of the animal okay so you know really you know 90 to 100 degrees is max 100 so starting to get pretty dangerous you can actually shrink the leather if you go too warm hmm. so after we do the washing, then it will go to the pickling process. And the pickling process is where we lower the pH of the leather okay. in the skin. And we bring the pH down. And the reason why we do that is because the tanning agent that you want to put into it, it's a, it's a chemical process where the, 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 whether it's a, doesn't really matter if it's a vegetable tan, a mineral tan, or a synthetic tan they're all going to come in and bind with the collagen and it's a chemical process. And these chemical processes are influenced by pH. And so if we bring the pH down to about three, then when you, or for our particular tanning, different, different tanning requires different pHs. If you don't do that, then when you put the tan, when you put them in the tanning bath, all the tanning just fixes to the surface. Oh, all right. So we've got to get the tanning to go into the skin. And then once it's into the skin, then we bring the pH up and then it binds to the collagen. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Um, yeah. You uh, you could tell you really know what you're talking about because you can explain it really simply. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to use it as the simplest description as I can, but, you know, uh, think, think about the uh, – you can think about the pickling process as kind of a primer before the paint job. Perfect. And so it's able to soak further into the skin and exactly uh, and bind and everything. So, yeah. And so if we're dealing with like a really heavy skin, like a, like a bison, then we may have to pickle it for several days to bring the pH all the way down. Mm-hmm. And then when we go to tan it, we may have to leave it in the tanning bath for several days to get the penetration all the way through before we bring the pH up and then it binds to the skin and then we're finished. Now, the other things that affect this whole process is whether or not you can affect some mechanical action and stir it. Okay. So if you put it in a bath and stir it, you can speed up the the rate at which you can lower the pH of the skin. You can speed up the rate at which you, you basically push or wash the tanning agent through the skin and then bring the pH back up. But here's the trouble. If you're doing a bunch of coyotes and you're stirring it all the time, they'll come out matted. Really? The fur, yes, the fur will get all tangled up. 
So they're soaked, and, and thankfully those are very thin skins, so it, 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 there's not much to push through. Yeah. But a beaver, on the other hand, has got a, a, pretty ta- a pretty tough leather and pretty tight grain to the leather, but it's got short hair, so we can stir the heck out of it, and that helps push it through and speeds up the whole process. Mm-hmm. But where we get into something really tricky is something like a mountain goat or like a bison cape that somebody shot and wants to mount on the wall. That bison cape can have hair 18 inches long in places. And the leather around the forehead can be two inches thick. Mm-hmm. So then we get into a tricky spot where, well, it's really thick, but if we stir it to help push the stuff through, it's going to tangle up all the hair. Yeah. So the bison capes, we just when we push those into a pickle, we got some plastic tubs. We put them in like Tupperware, giant Tupperware, put the lid on it, and then we just set it somewhere for about two weeks. And okay. just let it sit. Yeah. And then we come back, pull it up, and it's ready to go to the next step. So that processing that takes a lot more time. Mm-hmm. And there's no danger. Is there danger of having it in that pickle for too long? No. If you pre- if you prep a pickle properly, you can leave it. And, in fact, I ran an experiment once on this. If you prep a pickle properly, you can leave it in there for years. Oh, wow. Yeah, but that, that takes a unique pickle. You, the, the, the more you lower the pH – the longer you can leave it in there. If you keep your pH below one, and there's some things you have to do to the water to make sure you protect the skin from that level of acid. Yeah. But if you take it down to under one, the bacteria won't touch it, and that, that'll sit around for, you know, like, um, uh, you ever been into the old dive bar that has a jar of pickled eggs in it? <laughs> yes. I've never touched that, one myself, though. Yeah, but they'll sit there for a month. It's not a problem. <laughs> yeah. Or, or pickles in your refrigerator. It's the same sure. thing. You've lowered yeah. the pH on them. They'll sit there for a long time without a problem. Yeah. So then um, after the – take us through after you get through the pH bath. So, yes, after we've come out – now, there's there's a couple stages in here that I've kind of glanced over. Heavy hides will, ha- hides will have to go over and get fleshed more than one time and go back and forth. But uh-huh. the basic process is is you soak it, flesh it wash it, pickle it, tan it, and then and then after the tanning, then we do what we call a paring out, which is now we're not fleshing, we're actually shaving the leather down. So it's not membrane and stuff, it's actually making the leather thinner. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, hides like beavers will be super, super stiff and heavy. So um, after we shave the leather down, then we dry them up till they're about 75% dry, and then we oil them. And then once we oil them, we basically just roll, roll them up and let them sit overnight. And then the next day, we start our mill drumming, where we drum them in hardwood sawdust and solvents in order to clean the fur, to break the leather, and to make sure that the oil has been fully distributed throughout the leather. And so something like a beaver will get milled for about six hours. They'll go in and we'll do a first milling, which is sawdust that's been used a couple of times are kind of greasy and we just drum it in there and it gets the hide warm mm-hmm. it'll get a, get it up to about 90 degrees and then the oil and everything starts to move through the skin nice and easy everything breaks down and then we'll take it out of there put it in a cage shake all that sawdust off and then we start stripping the excess oil out of the leather and cleaning the fur in a hardwood sawdust and we and some solvent to cut the oil and we'll drum it for another two hours there that cleans it up, and then from there it'll go to the final stage, 
with a final drumming with brand new sawdust to clean it up and then it's completely clean when it comes out. Then after that, we do some basic things like we stretch it, we break the leather a little bit with a staking machine, and then we comb it. And then we have what's called a, an iron. And the iron, uh, it's actually a drum that warms up, um, just like your iron in the house. And then it will, it spins, and it's got some, not blades, but I would say um, some high and low spots on it. And we run the hides through there, and the temperature and the beating when we run through there, the main purpose of it is to take the static electricity out of the fur. If if there's some static in there, the hair, the, the hair will clump together. Oh, okay. So we run that through there, and that takes the static electricity off, and then it opens up, puffs up. Then we run it through a vacuum machine that sucks up any little dust or or particles or anything that's left from the hardwood. Then we hang them up. From there, they'll go into the warehouse, and then the difficult job of sorting through all the hides, matching up all the, the marks, and um, putting them in the boxes that belong to individual clients. And that sounds easy, but if, if, if there's a coyote in this batch that belongs to Jeremiah, but Jeremiah's already had a beaver that's done, they got to look at the paperwork, see that Jeremiah already has a beaver that's done, go into the warehouse, find the box with the beaver, bring it out, put the coyote in there take it back in the warehouse, put it away, and then wait until your skunk comes out later. You probably need a lot of room for a lot of boxes. Yeah. So there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a whole process to that that, you know, when we built the thing, we didn't think it would be that complicated, but it's, it's, it's pretty sticky. Yeah. And, and when you're going through this process, this is, there's a lot involved here. There are a lot of steps, um, and it really gives it, somebody a better idea of why it costs so much to have a beaver tanned there's a lot of labor there oh is it the the labor is and, and it's just getting more expensive so so you've got uh something like a beaver when you're when you're say um shaving that you, you mentioned shaving that that's after the tanning process correct mm-hmm. um and you're you're thinning out the skin it, i'm having a hard time visualizing how you do that without uh, potentially causing uh, damage to the pelt or making a cut in it. Do you like? Do you have like a grinding, uh, like a a wire wheel or something? And are you or are you actually oh, scraping yeah. physically? That is actually uh, a very interesting question because it's difficult to, to describe to somebody who's never seen one. Have you seen a fleshing machine in a tannery before? Do you know no, what they look like? No, I haven't. Okay, so a fur fleshing machine, it it looks like a disc that you would cut a pizza with. You know the little roller with oh, the yeah. put the slice up. Okay, yep. I've seen I've seen pictures of those online. Yeah. Yeah. So it looks like a disc, and it's mounted, and then we've got a motor, and it spins, so it turns. But then there's a trick to it. The edge is rolled over at about seventy to ninety degrees. Okay. So if you can imagine that pizza disc, you know it's it's sharp in the middle and it cuts the pizza. But if you bend over the edge. Then when you when you run your hand over it from say right to left, it won't cut you because you're going over the edge that's been bent. But then if you pull it back the other way, then it'll just peel the skin right off your hand. And it works. And the reason why they call it paring out is you know a paring knife that you might use to uh, peel potatoes in your house. Yeah. It's set up like that. Okay. So there's like a so, guard on each side of it or something. No, there's no guard there. It's just that the functional way that it's that it's bent um, prevents it from, uh, and the way that it spins prevents it from cutting too deep. If you know what you're doing, it takes 
about a year to train somebody to run that machine. Really? Because they, they, they can cut the skins for sure, 100%. And so that's that's the tricky part is when we start out to train somebody to do that, what do we train them on? We train them on bison hides because they're an inch thick. Mm-hmm. And if you've got a big old bison hide and somebody puts a little quarter inch hole in it and they're throwing it over the couch, nobody really sees it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, they would prefer to have it without a hole in it, but a little quarter inch thing, once it's laying over the couch and, you know, the guy's got his friends over on Saturday night, nobody's going to see that, you know? Right. Now you put a little hole in a beaver that you want to make uh, like a hoop out of or something. That's a different story. Now you got a problem. Yeah. So it takes um, the best way to do that is uh, uh, to describe this is actually take a video and show people how it works. But they're able to take pieces of 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 leather off of the skin, and and they and when you hold up the piece they cut off, it's so thin you can almost see through it. It's like um, uh, you can see the light coming like through transparent. it. Transparent. Yeah. Yeah, it's super thin cuts coming off. And these strips Almost, that you're cutting are pretty narrow strips. Yeah, they're only taking off uh, maybe at the most an inch to two inches. Okay, so you're running that pelt across that wheel a lot of times. Yeah, so for example, on a bison hide, that takes five hours of fleshing and, wow. and paring out. Uh, something like a coyote, they might do in 10 minutes, one of my really good guys. Yeah. So... Um, and then, you know, it's got to go through there twice, first time for fleshing, second time for the pairing out and, um, and the, the, maybe a total of 15 minutes on that. Mm-hmm. But this is, you know, this is 15 minutes of somebody that's been trained for several years to run that machine and, and they make a good salary. Yeah. That's, that's the trickiest part right there. That's razor thin margins, I imagine. Um, yes. It, um, do you even do the, like the real thin skins, like like Martin or Weasel, are you still? You pro- can you even run those through that machine? Yes. So what you will see is on something like a Weasel, the only thing that we're going to do is is trim off any excess flesh. Okay. Like, and by flesh I mean membrane and fat and that kind of stuff. Um, but and like a, a Red Fox, for example, we'll do a little bit around the head, but we won't touch the belly. Yeah. Just the belly super. It's just too thin. They might they might go over it and trip off. They might try and take off a little piece of flesh or something that's hanging there, a little bit of membrane that's left. But if you look at the tanning and roll it over and look at the, like the belly and the red fox and stuff, you can see that on a thin one, there's places where we just didn't touch it because um, it was better to leave that a little bit rough than run it over because we're, we're going to cut a hole in it if we do. Yeah. yeah. So it's, kind of, it's a pretty fine art of trying to determine the exact thickness that will create a soft, supple pelt. And yeah, and it is... It is definitely an art because the guys just they have to run the machines and it and it comes down to feeling because again, every single one of these hides is an individual. Every single one of those beavers that come through is different. You've got a you know, maybe a, a great big blanket beaver and he was an old war dog, you know, and he's mm-hmm. got lots of scars and that kind of stuff and he's tough. And another one might be just like a, a small female, little baby little baby one, and it's super thin, so Everyone that gets it, you can't say, okay, set your depth to so many millimeters. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. How do you keep the – I know as a trapper I get a lot of damaged furs, especially certain times of year, or I, I might mess up on the flesh and knife and put a cut in one of them or a couple cuts. Um, but I notice when those come back from the tannery that the holes look identical to, to the way I sent them. So how do you keep those from opening up when you're going through that whole process? 
usually if we see a hole first thing first thing we'll do is we, we won't slash around it because we don't want to make it any worse yeah and you know the like a, like especially on a fox or a coyote or something the the mechanical action in the tanning is not that much uh, i mean it they do but rolling them around in the sawdust and stuff really doesn't um cause much problem now a hole that you somebody cut is usually pretty stable but if somebody has something that's got a little tear in it then when we're processing you see the tear start to grow okay you follow like a, yeah. a hole is kind of round right but yeah. like if somebody you know was skinning something and uh and, and he tore it a little bit where the leg starts or something at the hip or something. Yeah. Then, you know, even our guys, we when we stretch them, we stretch them by hand when they're all done. And we see there's a hole or we see there's a tear. They'll often just not stretch that part, you know. But every once in a while, they'll try and stretch things a little bit. And, and you'll see a tear and we'll give it a little pull and it'll tear another half an inch or an inch. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, with, with 50 guys working out there, you do the best you can to get people trained and say, if there's holes in it, don't stretch it, but don't stretch it too much. And they have to make a decision and they don't always make the right decision every time. And even myself, when I'm working out there, there's times when I was working with a, a, a skin and I went to stretch it and I, and it tore Oh crap. Didn't mean to do that. Yeah. But, but it's relatively low percentage. And so that stretching is, uh, that's done after everything else is done. Yeah. So there, there's two points where they get stretched. One is, I mentioned that after the tanning and the shaving, we dry it up to about 75% before we oil them. Just before the oiling, we give everything a stretch because you have to open up the leather so you can get the oil to go in. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the process, then we give, then we stretch and break things out a little bit more. And and they're done different ways. There's not much of a stretch on the coyotes except for to pull it long and hang it so you have a nice shape to it. Yeah. Whereas beavers go, we we run those on a staking machine. And a staking machine is to break the leather down. Okay. Uh, and the best way to describe that is imagine a, um, a round drum with uh, dull um, – uh, something that's kind of halfway between uh, a half-moon kind of peg or, or blade, but it's completely dull. And as it goes around and spins, when you run the, the, the hide under it, it stretches as, as it runs across the top of the hide. Okay. And that breaks it down. And the, and the whole purpose, the best way to explain it is, you know, you, you've all had a pair of uh, boots that were leather that got wet and then they were stiff. But after you walk around in them for a day, they break back down. Yeah. That's what the process is of staking, is breaking that leather back down so it's soft again. And if you don't do that in a certain period of time, uh, it, you won't be able to get the fur soft? Yeah, it'll come out. it'll come out stiff. So one of the things we have to really be careful of is we want to make sure everything is 100% dry. Uh, I'm not, there's always some moisture in a community and stuff, but for the most part, completely dried out before we put them in a box. Because um, bigger hides, when we get all finished them, we'll let them hang for two days before we box them up. Because what we learned was if uh, they looked fine when they were there on the tanner and everything's okay, we boxed them up, we put them in the box, and there was still a little humidity into them. And then when they completely dried out, when, when a piece of leather dries, it keeps the shape okay. of of how you dried it. So like a, when, when the coyotes, we stretch them long and then hang them, then they stay nice and long. If you don't do that, they're kind of short and fat. Mm-hmm. And people like their, their coyotes and their foxes nice and long. And so if you box if you box everything up and there's still a little humidity and then it dries that way, when the customer gets it back, he has a hard time getting his proper shape and stuff back. And the other thing is 
once everything's completely dry, that's when you want to break it and it stays soft. If it gets wet again, it dries up stiff again. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. It is a very complex process. Now, you talked about the three, you mentioned three different types of tan, vegetable, mineral, and synthetic, I believe. Um, You want to go through maybe what, what those are? Yeah, and there's actually there's more than that out there, but I'll give you the basics. So, the um, the word tanning. Have you ever heard of people say that they want to open up their bottle of wine and what wait for the tannins to 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 yes. oxidize? Yeah. So the word tanning. So there's a, a material in, in vegetable and bark and stuff, and it's called tannin. That's where the word tanning comes from. And basically, a vegetable tanning is they 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 bring it out of vegetable, and that's a a pretty natural process. And that's what all of your, like, saddle leather and belt leather is made out of. So that, that gives you a real, you know, like the, the really tough, hard leather that's hard. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no stretch to that. And it's not soft, but it's got a different pur- purpose. It's a, it's a satchel. It's a, it's a saddle. It's something like that. And that's, that's your typical vegetable tan. Okay. Um, and then the most common after that would be mineral tan. And we use one kind of mineral tan, and the but the most common mineral tan around the world has been what's called chrome, which we don't use. But chrome is what your really soft leather jacket's done with. Okay. So it gives you a skin that's really, really, really soft, but it tends you 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 basically have to dye it when you're done because it's going to give it a little greenish tone, and and so all those leathers that are made are all dyed and things like that. And then what's done for fur, and what the traders always used for fur is an aluminum tan, which is a mineral tan also. And the nice thing about aluminum is it's it's completely safe for the environment. We don't really have to treat it at all, just adjust the pH when it goes out because the, the water treatment plants use aluminum in their process to settle out all of their settles and the, their their um, solids in the water. So it's so even being used in water treatment plants. But the aluminum is what we use for most of our tanning, but there's there's different kinds. And if it's not done right, the hide will fall apart after a few years. So you can use aluminum, but you have to do it the right way. Um, and that I keep to myself for the moment. I don't share that with everybody. That's a trade, trade secret. A little bit of a trade secret. Yeah. On, on the, it's because there are different kinds of aluminum. Um, it's not so much different kinds of aluminum, but it's the, the delivery on how you get it. Um, you can't buy just aluminum by itself. You can buy aluminum chloride. You can buy... Uh, aluminum triformate you can buy aluminum sulfate so and they'll all do tanning but um, if you use the right one and treat it properly the hide will last indefinitely okay uh, a lot of people will try to aluminum tan just at home um, a lot of taxidermists will try this and after a year or two the, the hide's fine but if it gets wet it'll fall apart and turn to tissue paper so there's a, there's a right way to do it and then there's a lot of newer tans out there, synthetic tans that they have out there that um, are different kind of polymers that the leather trade uses for mostly retanning. In other words, they will tan with chrome first, and then they'll tan with this synthetic tan to give it a different kind of a finish or waterproof it or, or all kinds of different things like that. So those, those are the three basic tans out there is your vegetable and your uh, your mineral tan, which most of the world uses chrome, but for what we do, we use aluminum. And the rest of the fur trade uses aluminum. And then um, the only thing part of the fur trade that uses chrome 
is if they're going to dye the skins after. Okay. Because um, is chrome so like, easier? Did you say? Uh, it's easier to tan with, and it actually gives you a stronger leather with a higher a higher what they call um, shrink temperature. So the shrink temperature means uh, if you were to take the skin and heat it, at what point does it just shrink and crumple up by itself? And the, the chrome gives you a higher shrink temperature. And the reason why people that do a lot of dyeing and stuff like that, they, they will tan with aluminum, reinforce with chrome, and then they can then they can dye. And they do the chrome because they have to dye stuff at a higher temperature. Okay. It protects it. Yeah, it protects it. And so since we don't do any dyeing and stuff, we don't do that. And the other reason why we don't do any of that stuff is we would have to have our own com like completely um, – our own complete sewer treatment center. Whereas right now we just have to do a minor treatment. We have to screen it for solids and then adjust the pH before it goes to the city. If we had to deal with chrome, then we're going to have to deal with a – we have to, we would have to put in a, a heavy metal separation Okay. In our in our sewer sewer system, so we 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 want to steer clear with that away yeah, from that. Yeah, that's actually I was going to ask that question because it it came to mind after you were describing the scope of and the size of the operation. That uh, I remember the in the old days, you know, like the early 1900s, there were a lot of tanneries here where I live in Maine, and they, you know, you could a lot of the roads are named Tannery Road and everything. And um, but one of the things I remember about them is that a legacy of real bad water quality problems. Yeah. And so uh, how how is this type of tanning different? And I was, I was curious on how, how you do have to treat the water. Yeah, the only thing we have to do um, is adjust the pH. Because we'll, we'll finish our, you know, we'll have our pickle, which is down around two or three, depending on what we're doing. We can't send that acid water to the city because it, it rocks the pipes out. Okay on the way so all we have to do is bring our ph back up to about neutral somewhere between six and eight and screen it for any solids and then it goes to the city and they take care of it it's not a problem because the um as i was mentioning we use aluminum and like i was saying the aluminum binds to the collagen aluminum in water treatment facilities they put this in what they call their clarifier so they 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 you know, kind of run their septic system and break bacteria and break stuff down. And then they screen stuff. And then one of the last steps is they introduce aluminum to the water, run the pH up to about 5.5 and the aluminum will bind to little solids and particles that are in the water. And when it does that, it makes it heavy. It makes it, you know, it gives it some, some, some mass to the particle. And then they can either run it through a, a daft in which they can, um, kind of run bubbles through it and get it to float to the surface and clean it off or let it sink and pull it out. But it separates the garbage from the water chemically. Okay. And so when we use aluminum in our process to do that, it goes through to them and it just goes right through their process and actually maybe helps them a little bit in, in cleaning up the water. Sure. Huh. That's interesting. I not what I, what I would have thought. So yeah, if you're, you you're, use... you're, and, and the other, the other key difference is, um, a big problem with, with traditional leather tanneries would be they had to slip the hair off the skins and they have to do a lot of sulfides and stuff like oh, that. Okay. And that's a big, grimy process. And they were dumping that right back into the river when they were done. Yeah, and that's a that's a big, you know, you imagine all that if I slipped all the hair off of this stuff and then we used a lot and then you have they use lime to do it to run the pH. So now you've got lime in the water and you've got this, this you know, basically gunk, you know, big mass 
um, we don't have to do any of that. Okay. How about water supply? Is that an issue? No, not where we live. And, and, you know, compared to, you know, this is an agriculture compared, you know, community, what, what they put in a potato field in two minutes is more than what I use in a day. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So it's not super, super uh, water demanding process. No, it's, it's pretty, it's, 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 it's pretty efficient. Yeah. That's neat. Let's see. Um, so you, I think you, you went over a bunch of the stuff that I was looking for. Um, and you, you talk, we talked about the time to get the fur back and it, it makes a lot of sense now that you, you discussed how everything is kind of lotted up into different groups. Um, and, and in terms of the timing of the season, is there anything else that uh, people might wonder like, well, how come I, I sent my fur and it's been three months and three, four months and I haven't got it back. I mean, for most people who have done this for a long time, realize that that, that can be often just standard but for new people they might not understand that yeah because so you have to understand we have to keep our people employed all year and so we can't just process everything as it comes in or that i got to send my whole all my guys home in july august and september for three months yeah so we've got to have a little bit of a backlog to keep keep things through but for people that want to get stuff in quick if you send your product in in january you're going to get it back pretty fast because what happens is it's it's a low season and, and you know usually in January February we've got uh, not February so much but December January we still have less work coming in than the factory does and so when stuff comes in it's going out really quick but then what happens is you know everybody comes out of the mountains and they got their fur shed and they've figured out what they're going to do and they sent some to the auction and then they everybody's kind of decided in late February March and April. Um, well, I've decided I want to send something to the tannery and everybody sends it at the same time. Yeah. So March is the single biggest month for incoming orders for us. So if you send your product in in January, you're going to get pretty fast. If you send it in in April, it's going to be it's going to take, you know, it's very interesting what two weeks can do. You can have one guy send in his stuff, let's say February 15th, and he gets it back in 45 days. And another guy sent his stuff in March 1st, and it took him 75 days because in that two weeks, there was the line got that much longer. Yeah. Because it's first first come first serve. So if you if you wait till late spring, it's going to take a, a quite a while to get it back. If you're at the front of the line before everybody starts, you know, if you send it in just before the line starts to get long, then then it works out pretty good. It's just like. If you're at the DMV when they open at 8 a.m., you get through pretty quick. But if you show up at like, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning and there's already 100 people in line in front of you, you got to tough it out. Yeah. And my, I'm a, I'm a perfect example of that because I just sent some, a big box of stuff like three weeks ago, three, four weeks ago. And I just got an email yesterday that it was shipped. It was on its way. And so um, and that was right in that slow January time. Um, exactly. And uh, you do have like a an express service or a, a speedy service. Yeah. So if somebody needs, you know, if somebody needs something quick because they want to give it to somebody for their birthday or whatever, we do have a forty day service turnaround. So I mean, if myself personally and I, you know, know what thing is like, if it was December January, I probably wouldn't pay the forty days unless I wanted to guarantee it was going to get back in four days because you're going to get it pretty quick anyway. Yeah. But you know, if it's April. 
um, you're going to be out 90 days without a problem for sure. So if you wanted it back quicker, then we do offer a 40-day service for uh, 50% surcharge. Okay. And the other thing I noticed is um, you, for, you, you just started this new customer portal, which I, I've used. I really like. Um, what On your end, how does that – I know you've been talking about it quite a bit. Um, how does that customer portal change the way that you do business and how orders come in and out? So the whole purpose for that really is – uh, labor is getting more and more expensive, and especially where there are so many trappers, you know, people that do it as a hobby, it's not such a big deal, but a lot of people are still trying to make a living doing this. Um, we really try and hard not to raise our prices because, you know, if everything, you know, if coyotes were all $100 a piece and, you know, the rest, you know, and raccoons were $25 a piece, then we could raise our price a little bit and the trapper's got a little money in his pocket. But, you know, we understand, you know, it's been depressed for a while. A lot of people are doing it just because they love to do it. We're trying to hold our line with the prices. And, you know, labor where I live has gone up 20% in the last three years. Wow. So it's, it's really getting more difficult. And so we thought, well, we don't want to cheapen the quality. We don't want to start cutting steps in the factory. But 20% of our labor cost is the accounting, receiving an order, getting it, getting it organized and getting it back to the same customer. So we've decided we're going to try and cut that in half and save the money on on the receiving the orders and getting them back to the customers because uh, that that that's something that doesn't really add value to the product. Yeah. You know, I don't want to I don't want to see if we can comb the skins a little faster because combing the skins adds value to the product. But you know, entering the data in the computer and stuff. Uh, if we can automate that stuff, you still get the same quality product back. So that's the real drive is we're trying to cut the cost of being able to deliver our service and give everybody a little bit more transparency in what they're doing. So when people enter their order online, they've already entered their license number and they've, they've already got it in our system. We just have to check it in when it gets here. Yeah. And so it helps cut our labor. And then, you know, people can review their order and make sure it's all correct. You know, if somebody sends us a comp, you know, 10 of this and five of that and 12 of the other things, you know, when, when our girl girls enter the orders, when they get here, they got to verify that, that they didn't do a typo. What if they put in 25 instead of 52 on something, you know, just mm -hmm. put it in backwards. Then we got a big problem. So we believe if people, you know, enter the data themselves, they can review the order, make sure everything's correct before they send it. And the other thing that we do through the portal is, you, you pay when you send it. You run your credit card, and that doesn't seem like such a big deal. But for us, it's less about collecting the money early about and more about just having the process completely finished. Yeah. Because when, when that product gets here, we can run it through the factory. It comes out. It goes in a box, and it goes back to the customer. If it's not paid, it, go, it comes in, goes through the factory. Then we have to store it, put it in the warehouse, mail an invoice to the customer. Customer gets it back sends us a, a then then you know they mail us an envelope then we enter the check then we have to go in then we have to find the box then we have to get it out and then send it back to the customer and it adds a whole layer of additional work to the whole thing so we're just trying to streamline it as much as possible and get it back to the customers quicker and so to encourage people to use the the online portal um, what we do is we give everybody we take 30 days off of their order process time and the way that works is let's say today the turnaround time is 90 days 
uh, we try to cut that to 60 days for an online order with no additional charge. If you if you went through and did the process and did that that bit of labor to get it all entered, then we're going to give you that benefit. And the way that it basically works is uh, if we received the order on February 10th, let's say, um, if it was done online, the first thing that happens is you've got your order date based on the day that you sent your order and then you shipped it to us. So your order date's probably a week a week sooner anyway. Okay, because yeah, From people who didn't go through the portal. Yeah, because if yeah. you send it to me and then we get it and we unbox it and, and we stamp it, you know, okay, we got it today. Well, if you already put that in there, you're already one week ahead. Yeah. And then the next thing that we do is, let's say you, you did your, your order online February 10th. When it gets here, we kind of manipulate the that that date in our system and we give it basically instead of february 10th we say that one arrived january 10th yeah and so it, it doesn't take you to the front of the line but it inserts you in the line 30 days earlier yeah and 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 everything that comes in on that stuff we lot it up separately and we push those boxes through we did we didn't want to just push those to the front of the line all the time because then the guys who send us stuff in normally will never get theirs done. Right. Yeah. So it, it just you just cut the line thirty days, and that helps you get your product back quicker, which you deserve because you put the labor into it and you're prepaid. Yeah, and I I actually like using it because it shows you know you entered all of your skins, and so you, like you said, you know what you've got, and then it actually discounts the quantity discounts for you, so you see what you see where you're at, yeah. and you know exactly what you're gonna pay by the end of it. Yeah, and then there's only one caveat to that is um, – The larger orders, right? The larger orders. Yeah. If the order is less than $500, then our we, we've got a program that calculates what the return freight is going to be. But if the – and so if it's or, if it's less than 500 you will know exactly how much your return freight is going to be. So you've got your total cost. If it's over $500, we've discovered that becomes really difficult to predict, predict what the freight is going to be. Because if it's $500 worth of bison, that's two bison in one box. But if it's $500 worth of muskrats, uh, that's a whole pile of muskrats, and they go in the box and they're heavier. And it get, really gets complicated. So on the larger orders, what happens is you, you, you get your total for your tanning, it comes in, and then when it's done, we weigh the box, and your, your credit card stay uh, stored safely in the system anonymously um, and it's encrypted. And then what we do is we weigh the box and then when we got the exact return uh, cost, we run your credit card to pay for the return freight and it's on your way back to you. Yeah. So how long have you been using the portal? About one year, just a little over one year. And uh, it looks like it's working pretty good. We've got anywhere from 20 to 30% of the orders are coming in that way now. Okay. Yeah, and we've got some new additions to that portal. We're always upgrading it, making it a little better, making it a little easier to use. Um, we've got a we're, we're working on a system, hopefully a year from now, where instead of marking your skins with little holes in them, we're we're trying to move towards a barcode system. And uh, but that's complicated putting on a barcode on one of these skins that's going to go through the tanner. <laughs> I that's, can imagine. That's not an easy. That's not an easy thing. Yeah. Um, but we've uh, we're working towards that, and actually, individuals will be able to put the barcodes on their own skins. Oh, interesting. And and then once you do that, we we'd actually have an app where you could actually scan scan the skins, 
and that makes your order for you. How would you put the barcode on? So we've, we're, yeah, it ended, like what we found was a kind of thing. No, no, because nothing, none of that right. works. And then anywhere, <laughs> anywhere you stick it has to be shaved and processed. So what we found is a fabric barcode that would that you would see like on the inside of coveralls or something. You might see a barcode or something mm-hmm. that had been sewn in. Um, we found something like that that we can attach to like a ribbon, and then you punch a tiny little hole in there and tie it on. Okay. Or you or you run it through the eye, one of the two. Mm-hmm. But it's soft. It's not like a um, not like a not like a fishing game tag that's a hard plastic. Okay. Yeah. And so that that would would that take the place of the the punch? That would take the place of the punch. Um, it's that's mostly going to be used for the larger skins to start with, and then we'll see if it's effective to to move into the little skins. Yeah. Huh. Um, that that brings us to the topic of probably the most uh, daunting task, in in some ways, is the whole. Uh, government regulations and you're taking and fur from 50 different states and uh, each has a different regulation how do you keep all that straight that is that's a <laughs> that takes a lot of experience is what that takes <laughs> um so you know we've got we've got it nailed down pretty good and we've got a little um kind of a a, a grid up on the wall in our in our factory and so in a, there are certain things that we look for, like we're not really going to get too concerned about looking for regulations on coyotes. We just know the guy's got a license and this is a coyote that's probably 99.9999% okay. Yeah. Um, it's the little items like uh, bobcats, wolves, wolverines, protected species, things like that. So when we get one, we've got a grid and it tells us, okay, this guy's from Tennessee and it's a bobcat. And the grid tells us there's there's no no tag required there. Yeah. Um, now there's a tag required to sell it, but it explicitly states in the regulations that you can send it out of state for tanning without a tag. So we've we've got a little grid system put together, and and we've gotten pretty good at being able to pick out what's what's required. Yeah. And and you got the CITES. Everybody obviously knows uh, bobcat and otter all need tags, no matter where they come from. No, that's that's not true. It's not, not okay. True. No. Uh, bobcats, for example, um, it's Kentucky and Tennessee that I just mentioned. They don't require a tag. Really? I didn't realize that. Now, they require a tag to get exported. So if oh, you okay. want to sell it at the auction, you're going to have to put a tag on it. Okay. okay. Um, but like uh, otters, otters in Nevada, they don't tag them. Really? Nope. So it's it's really really. Um, so like you said, experience. <laughs> yeah, it, it's experience, and so you know, like for example, in South Dakota, you do not need to tag a bobcat unless you ship it out of state raw. Then you have to tag it. Okay, but if Same, you get it tanned, then it it doesn't apply. Yeah, but you can't ship it to the tannery. So like, you could have it tanned okay. in South Dakota and then ship it out. Okay. But if you wanted to send it to me from South Dakota, you will have to get it tagged, and that happens. We'll receive something. We'll look and see where it comes from, and we'll see. Oh, that came from South Dakota. It requires a tag for us to get it. We'll call the company and say, "Hey, this needs a tag." It says we don't have to tag them here. I say yes, but if you look on page twenty-seven of the fine print, <laughs> it says if you ship it out of Turkey. So, you know, if everything looks okay and it's correct, we send it back to the customer. Yeah. If we get something in and we sincerely believe that this thing's been poached, you know, like you call the customer and say, "Hey, 
this thing is supposed to have a tag on it. What's the story? And they give you some sort of fishy story. Yeah. Uh, then we have a problem because it's illegal for us to ship it back. Oh. People don't understand that, but it, it's it's a federal – that's a Lacey Act violation Cross state lines, to, sh yeah. to ship anything that was illegally taken over state lines. So that becomes a real dicey issue. If we're 100% sure this thing's legal, the guy just needs to take it to his fishing game guy, we'll send it back to him. He takes it to his fishing game guy, and then he takes it, comes back in. But if it's, if it's something we're really kind of questioning, then we'll call the customer, talk to him about it, and if we get a fishy story – you know, we'll use it as well. We're gonna we're gonna call our local fishing game here and have them come take a look at this. And you can take it up with them, because bringing in anything illegal, it basically uh, puts everybody's skins at risk. Yeah. Because then fishing game can come in and go through everything and make a big mess, and and we just have to make sure that everything's legal all the time, and if we and and we keep our paperwork correct and make sure. You know, and a lot often fishing game will call us and they say they're looking for something. Uh, they're looking from a, a wolf that a certain guy got. We'll look in our system to see if 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 it's came into us. And so we're we're required by law to give them all of that information all the time. Yeah, yeah. So we we're very careful about making sure. That's why we don't take things like um, we'll have people send us bear paws, or they'll send us wolf legs, and we're like, we can't take this. Like, well, why? It says the wolf has to have a tag on it. Like, oh, well, you know, I, I mounted the thing, took the tag off, and these legs were left over, and I wanted to have them tanned. I'm like, sorry, you have to put a tag on each leg. Yeah. And so, so when, if somebody wants to cut it up, you have to tan the whole thing together, then take it back, and then cut it up after it's tanned. You can't cut it up before. Okay. That's, that's good to know. That's, that's probably a pretty unique situation, but still. <laughs> I, it, it, happen, it happens all the time. Really happens all the time. People call up and they want to send us some bear paws or they want to because they, they might buy a, a bear at an auction, a fur buyer just for the claws. And that's all they want. And but they don't want to pay for the tanning on the whole hide. So they try and just tan the bear paws. And says, no, nope, can't do that. <laughs> I was going to ask you some of the unique things that people send in. And I guess you you just uh, nailed one of them. Is there anything else? Oh, we've done. uh Shoot, we're, we're, you know, I've done the worst. The worst thing I ever tanned was a hippo. <laughs> yeah, that that was. Um, we just did the hippo head, and it was just the head, just the skin off the head, and it was it was completely dry, and it weighed 180 pounds dry. Wow, wow. And it was just the head, and uh, I I looked at what some of the big taxidermy tanneries charge for that, and I was like, well, all right, I'll charge you the same as they did, and I charged them 1,500 bucks and lost money. <laughs> and you can't make it up by doing other hippos in the future because they probably don't come in very often no i mean they're out there but <laughs> it's just one of those things where you know you got to do the first one to find out yeah yep you know we didn't we didn't make money on the first few bison that we did we had to figure out how to do it we had to set up a whole separate process but now we do thousands of them yeah 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 that's impressive in in you like to be successful, you really need to develop those systems and processes and just kind of make get more efficient over time and, and uh, minimize the mistakes and the amount of labor as much as you can. Yeah, it's just uh, it's practice. That's all it is is practice. Yeah. Well, hey, Ryan, um, th this has been great. I really appreciate you spending the time with us and going through all this stuff. Is, is there anything else that uh, we didn't get through that you'd like to, to cover or let people know? 
Um, not really. Um, just we're happy to be on the podcast, be a part of the community. We've been, uh, you know, going to trapper shows and rendezvous and stuff for uh, forever. It's been a little bit weird year, not traveling too much. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's happy to be able to uh, connect people, connect with, with people through this format. So we appreciate what you're doing. And Moyle.net, the best way to get a hold of you? Yes, it is. I don't know about you guys, but I learned a lot from that interview, and I have a newfound respect for what those guys at Moyle McIntannery do and just the scale, the amount of labor and organization and attention to detail that it requires to take care of all that fur and get it done without messing things up because um, you're, you're dealing with something that can be pretty important for you know, one fur can mean the world to a particular customer and trapper. So, um, yeah, it's cool stuff. I, I enjoyed it. Finally, a message from Cots Brothers Lures. Cots Bros is in the market for glands, caster, and skunk essence. They're paying a premium for large quantities, particularly of fox and bobcat glands. Go to cotsbros.com for current pricing and figure out, you know, what they still need and, and what they're paying. This market is... Uh, fluctuating on a regular basis and Kyle's right on top of things and and knows what he needs and what he's willing to pay and he's putting out this ad because they're looking for more uh there's a there's a major shortage in the industry right now and they've they've bumped prices up and and they're aggressively trying to hunt down some of those glands so check them out cotsbros.com for the latest information and Always feel free to contact me, jrodwood at gmail.com. Until next time, guys, keep on talking trapping, keep on thinking trapping, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Take care.